We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical mental suit, my physical as well as my mental suit fitness. Coffee time. Give me a break. Right? Give me a break. Let's hear that again. Give me a break. You know, uh, it's interesting to see how uh, things are unfolding. And it's like, uh, I'm not sure what planet we live on anymore. Welcome to the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. My name is Jason Floyd. I'm your host. And today, uh, joining me once again for episode 10, special episode 10, chapter 10, uh, dealing with the Alaska Grand Jury is author David Ignell. Welcome to the, the, the show again, David. And it's, uh, it's great to be back uh, on your show again. You know, um, it's it's crazy. To I just got a call from a gentleman, a local neighbor here on the peninsula, um, Marty Anderson. And Marty Anderson, uh, you may, for those of you who are are seasoned veterans of the Hour of Power, will remember he was one of our guests. Uh, I guess it would have been last spring, um, and he told us a tale of intrigue where uh, he's, he's a local businessman. He's uh, highly respected in his field of uh, non-destructive testing, primarily in the oil industry and transportation industries. When bad stuff happens, he's the guy they call to come and investigate and look and see what happened and what failed and what broke and how it happened. He's in high demand. He travels constantly. He's all over the world. And uh, he's got a story of uh, how... Uh, he was set up and uh, that uh, how local law enforcement, uh, one particular officer, investigating officer, seems to have colluded with his accusers, a, a rival company, uh, to paint him as a saboteur, uh, somebody engaged in industrial sabotage. This guy is uh, rock solid. He's got a great resume. He has many, many, over 70 contacts um, in high places in the, uh, in the petrochemical and, and uh, hydrocarbon industry, and which in Alaska, that's, that's pretty significant. Um, I guess he would be a boardroom name if uh, you were sitting in uh, Hillcorp or BP or something and they were saying, hey, we had something break, who do we call? So we're going to have Marty Anderson on the show here shortly. Um, and I only plug that because, you know, we've been talking sort of esoterically about uh, this idea of the grand jury and kind of grabbing at some really important information, but it's distant. It's distant from us. It's this information isn't coming from our friends and neighbors. It's uh, it's high-minded academics and famous jurists and uh, lawyers and philosophers through time, um, legal scholars, you know, former justices, all, all that kind of stuff. But I'm not really hanging out with those folks. 
but uh, but we do know people here locally. You know, David Hegg is one person that comes to mind that many people will know remember his story. But Marty Anderson's another one, and so you can look to the future to hear more about Marty's story. Um, we're actually going to record a podcast later today for airing later this week uh, or the next week, early next week. Um, that highlights sort of the the progress he's made and the information he has learned through his own investigative process and you know this has come at a high expense for him last time i talked to him last spring it was already one hundred twenty thousand dollars he'd spent in defending himself and um this cuts right to the heart of the question when official corruption occurs and it is revealed what then what happens to those folks on the other side who represent bureaucratic interests when they're exposed for being unethical or have engaged in criminal behavior? And uh, so today we're going to be looking at Chapter 10 with David. David, any, any initial comments on, on sort of my opening? And then we can jump right into the book. Yeah, just uh, a couple things, uh, Jason. You know, I w- once again, I, I just want to uh, express my appreciation for what you're doing, Jason, uh, by broadcasting this and you know, hearing that your numbers are going up uh, because this, you know, th- this is sh- helping to shine the spotlight of truth uh, on these problems in Alaska. And I, I also appreciate the people of Kenai. Uh, what they have done in, in supporting David Haig. Uh, and and I, I'm, I'm confident that uh, when the people of Kenai hear uh, Marty Anderson's story, that uh, they'll throw their support behind him, too, in, in the sense of a grand jury. And, uh, you know, being from Juneau, um, I really look forward to reading the ultimate reports that are issued by the Kenai grand jury on the David Haig situation, and then after that, the Marty Anderson situation. Uh, and then the last thing uh, in reference to what you just said, Jason, is um, you know about holding people accountable. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right that uh, a lot of government bureaucrats are, are able to kind of blend back into the woodwork uh, because there's no accountability. They, they do things that harm other people and they're not held accountable for that. And, uh, you know, as we, uh, you know, chapter one of my book uh, talks about that. It goes back to the old common law under England, uh, which uh, I don't think there's any statutes in Alaska which override this. But back then, if, if prosecutors engaged in deception, uh, they were disbarred and uh, in many cases put in prison for a year. And I can guarantee you that, uh, and I I talked to another group in Kenai about this last night, Uh, I can guarantee you that if there was that kind of deterrent, uh, we would not see our courts, uh, we would not see prosecutors and lawyers uh, engage in deception. Uh, And so I think it's a very important thing uh, moving forward that uh, the people need to stand up for. Uh, so unless you have any more uh, 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 comments on that, I'll, I'll start. Just, uh, just one comment. Yeah. You know, we often hear, or at least I have often heard, I, I, I say we, but uh, in, in my circle of influence and, and uh, my career, 
as a social worker and and a community activist and being involved in the political arena um i've heard often this this comment that uh uh you know well the the attorney general's office the the da's office they're just doing the best that they can because they're just so overwhelmed by the number of cases and the caseloads that they have to manage and being a former social worker, I can empathize with that position. At one point, I had 90 investigations sitting on my desk. But the reality is, is that out of those 90 investigations, I would say probably 30%, if I had to just wing it and guess right now, that 30% of those were uh, reports or allegations that were made falsely or with impure motive, where it wasn't a matter of, is a child safe, because I, I was an OCS worker, uh, or is there risk here, but somebody that had some other third motive for uh, making their claims. Maybe uh, the they don't like their neighbor because they keep uh, blowing leaves in their yard, or the dog's pooping, or maybe their kids uh, ran over their roses with their bikes, or or whatever, you know, maybe uh, they, it's just this, I would raise my children differently. Somebody's got to get control of these hoodlums, you know. Meanwhile, the kids are outside doing what kids do, chucking rocks and throwing sticks and climbing trees. And, um, you know, some folks believe that children should be sedated with, uh, you know, Adderall and Ritalin and other things and that they should be compliant little drones. And um, but for whatever reason, you know, that high caseload that I had didn't necessarily have to be as high if there was any real teeth in the state's reporting laws. There is a law uh, in the state of Alaska that it is a crime to file a false complaint. But there is no enforcement of that, especially in the case of OCS where you can make a uh, anonymous report and you can do it with impunity as many times as you want. And everyone I've talked to from the time that I was a licensed worker for 11 years and on, uh, no one has ever heard of a single case going to trial against someone who filed a false complaint. So, you know, just like the prosecutor should be held to account for pursuing uh, something under false pretense. Uh, the reporter should also be pursued uh, if they are uh, doing something out of a nefarious, you know, um, motive. And, and uh, I don't know how we return to that outside of what we've been talking about, but I think the grand jury is a great way to start and at least be the finder of fact. So let's go ahead and launch into chapter 10. Well, Jason, I, I, before we do that, I've, I've just got to make a quick comment because we actually covered this in the class last night. Um, you know, chapter one is the only chapter that deals with criminal uh, matters with the grand jury because in England, they, you know, the grand juries didn't involve themselves with uh civic investigations, but in criminal proceedings, which is, you know, very similar to what you're talking about with the OCS, um, you know, Lord Summers talked about how when, when the grand juror, you know, the grand, the grand jurors got to be clever. You know, they got to understand that there's going to be false accusations. 
that, that come before them and, and they need to mix things up a little bit. And, uh, and, and it, it was the, it was the duty of the grand jurors when they felt that, uh, that there was a false allegation that had been brought before them that they were to turn around and indict the, the false accuser. And, uh, and so I think grand juries are a, a great, um, you know, that's a great vehicle. I mean, I'm astounded to hear that, you know, in your experience, you think 30% um, of the accusations are false. Uh, I, I guess, I guess I'm, uh, I'm astounded at the high percentage. Uh, in my work, uh, you know, two of the cases that are um, part of my requested grand jury investigation involve false ac- accusations. And uh, there are motives. You know, people do. There's longstanding grudges uh, that, you know, in 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 the uh, in the native village of, you know, uh, in southeast, there's there's cultural disputes. There's clan disputes that go back centuries. There's animosity between people. And so when when the when the grand, you know, when prosecutors, when they turn a blind eye to false accusations and allow these things to linger, uh, it just, it, it, um, it undermines real victims is what it does. So no, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we need to have accountability in our legal system again. And I know of too many cases where it's been known that accusations were false, but the, um, you know, the the system uh, went after him anyway because it you know it, it padded their stats I guess or something but you know that's what the grand jury investigations will ultimately find out that's what I'm asking the Juno grand jury to to discern is is why you know why why did the why did the prosecutors just you know turn a deaf ear to this why did the judges turn a deaf ear to this. So, and, and the grand jury is going to be the only forum that, that gets things back in order because uh, all three branches of our government, you know, the judiciary and uh, the legislature and the, uh, the executive, they, they've shown they don't care. And so anyway. Um, they're, they're a locomotive <laughs> out of control. I got that word picture in my mind, this locomotive with no brakes headed towards a, a chasm and uh, the grand jury is is that uh, elite team of special forces guys that gals that jump on the rig and and get the brakes set and get it stopped man sounds like a movie yeah, sounds like yeah. you got a I need move, some dramatic move, move. C- cinematic uh, <laughs> music in the background who's who's going to be the who's going to be the star i mean rambo's getting a little old so who's who's going to be the guy <laughs> well, who needs I, to I jump saw on harrison, the train i saw harrison ford is uh yeah i like harrison ford better than rambo cuz harrison ford is every man right i mean he's just that quiet guy with the fun smile and the quirky sense of humor and kind of a bumbler a bumbler at times and you know but harrison ford i just saw is releasing uh indiana jones five uh through disney this next uh summer so uh maybe we could uh, tap him for that role maybe maybe i i see i see a movie script in the making (laughs) Okay, so um, I, I think we're done with the prelude. Should I uh, jump into Chapter 10 now? Go. Okay, a little sip of water. Okay, so um, yesterday we learned of the thorough investigation 
that the Juno grand jury undertook in connection with uh, wrongdoing in, by Governor Sheffield's administration. Uh, that was in Chapter 9. Uh, today, in Chapter 10, we're going to cover what happened after the grand jury re- recommended uh, Sheffield's impeachment. Uh, we'll see today how the Senate trial quickly became a political circus, uh, evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. We'll see how Mr. Sheffield's attorneys attacked the grand jury's ability to report wrongdoing by government officials. We'll see how those attorneys tried to belittle the case we studied in Chapter 8. Uh, if you recall, that was Judge Vanderbilt's opinion in, in the case of Camden. Uh, we'll see how certain legislators jumped on the bandwagon to attack the grand jury uh, to provide cover to provide cover for the governor. Uh, we'll then see how much in error uh, Sheffield's attorneys and those legislators were about the grand jury's reporting powers. Uh, then we'll see how the Senate turned on the grand jury and sought a constitutional amendment curbing the grand jury reporting powers. And then finally, uh, thanks to some very excellent reporting by the Fairbanks Daily Miner, we'll get an inside glimpse of the grand jury deliberations. We'll learn that 15 people, uh, individuals with different political affiliations, they worked together to arrive at a consensus uh, that was good for the general welfare of Alaskans. Uh, This is one of the longest chapters in my book. It's got lots of quotes and dialogue from the Senate trial. Uh, So grab yourself a cup of ammo canned coffee and try to hang with me here for the next hour. Chapter 10. Politicians give our governor a pass and attack the grand jury's reporting powers. Back in Chapter 5, we discussed how some politicians are one of the grand jury's historical enemies. In 1985, Alaska politicians lived up to this unbecoming reputation as adversaries of the people. Not surprisingly, the first politician to attack the Juno grand jury's report was Mr. Sheffield, its most influential one. He and his administration had been caught red-handed, trapped, with little to dispute other than what motivations were locked in their client's mind, Mr. Sheffield's attorneys targeted the reporting powers of the Alaska grand jury. Senators belonging to Mr. Sheffield's Democrat political party soon jumped on board with the mission to, quote, shoot the messenger, unquote. One of them, Robert Ziegler from Ketchikan, was quoted as saying, quote, This grand jury was led down a path where it violated every sense of fairness and decency. It embarked on courses of action that are unethical and illegal. It has turned its legal function into a political morass, unquote. Not surprisingly, ethics and the scales of justice took on a political tilt in the Senate where Democrats and Republicans interpreted the conduct of our governor differently. As this study will show towards the end of this chapter, toes were were being stepped on. The political stakes were huge, and those in political control of the Treasury had a lot of public money to bargain with. After the Senate Rules Committee, 
SRC, had concluded its own mini-investigation, the four Republican senators on the SRC issued a majority report, and the lone Democrat senator on the SRC issued a separate minority report. This chapter will take a closer look at how Alaskan politicians reacted to the Sheffield report by the Juneau Grand Jury, how the Alaska senators gave Mr. Sheffield a pass after hearing from their own attorney that his conduct raised, quote, serious ethical issues, unquote, how the attorneys for Alaska's elected governor misrepresented to the senators the common law reporting power of the Alaska grand jury, how all 20 senators, nearly an equal amount from each party, unanimously passed a resolution designed to undermine those reporting powers, how the 15 ordinary citizens comprising the Juneau grand jury bonded together in the face of the political attacks and in the end felt proud to be Alaskans and to do something meaningful for the public. Three weeks after Juneau Superior Court Judge Roger Pegues approved the public release of the Sheffield Report, the Alaska Senate assembled in a specially called session in Juneau to consider the grand jury's recommendations. Statements in the transcripts of the Senate sessions that followed suggest that some of them weren't too happy about having their summer plans disrupted by a group of ordinary citizens immune from their political control. The New York Times reported it this way, quote, with a motion for impeachment requiring approval of 14 of the 20 senators, senatorial displeasure with any stage of the process bodes ill for impeachment. While few senators have indicated approval of the office space lease in Fairbanks, at least seven have shown irritation with various aspects of the case being presented to them, unquote. The senators retained Samuel Dash, a former Watergate prosecutor, as their attorney to provide legal advice and to guide them through the impeachment proceedings. Mr. Sheffield's interests were represented by a team of attorneys he hired, including Philip Lacovera, also a Watergate veteran, and John Conway. The Juno Grand Jury and its attorneys did not participate as a party in the proceedings. However, Mr. Hickey was called as a witness. In his opening remarks to the five members of the SRC and the other 15 senators during the afternoon session of July 22, 1985, Mr. Dash told his Alaska Senate clients that the facts in the Sheffield report raised, quote, serious ethical issues, unquote, that undermined public confidence in government. All 20 Alaska senators heard the following statement from their own legal expert, quote, there is ample evidence in the grand jury testimony that the governor's office tampered with the lawful procurement procedures of the Department of Administration with the knowledge of the governor to promote a political and financial supporter. Such activity undermines the confidence of the public in government and raises serious ethical questions and the legislature should consider the statutory reforms recommended by the grand jury as a means of preventing this kind of activity 
in the future, unquote. These remarks alone should have established the credibility of the Sheffield report and elevated it beyond reproach. Yet that wasn't all Mr. Dash told his clients that afternoon. There may have been more wrongdoing by the Sheffield administration. Mr. Dash referred to additional allegations of inappropriate conduct by Mr. Sheffield that had not been fully investigated yet, indicating that he lacked the necessary resources to undertake an independent investigation as required under the Alaska Constitution. Quote, I am aware of a number of additional allegations concerning the governor's conduct, which have been publicly disclosed and partially investigated. However, to my knowledge, none of these investigations has resulted in any findings by a judicial or legislative agency. This committee presently does not have the necessary staff resources or time to undertake an, an independent investigation and to decide these collateral allegations in the complete and fair manner required by the Constitution of Alaska. During the next Senate, unquote, during the next Senate session later that evening on July 22, Mr. Dash told his clients he was recommending there was no impeachable offense. Republican Senator Jan Fakes asked Mr. Dash to explain, and the Senate's own attorney responded by pointing to the inadequacy of Alaska ethics laws on official misconduct, regardless of how, quote, improperly, unquote, the governor's office may have acted. Quote, the emphasis I placed on my recommendation that, as improper as this activity may have been in the terms of the ethics of a governor's office and standards that should be set in such activities, the law in Alaska seems to be that you need two things in order to bring about a conviction for official misconduct or the kind of conduct less than crime for an impeachable offense under clear and convincing evidence. The important element is that the governor would have had to be the prime actor, the principal actor, in seeing to it that these changes in the RFP, which led to a single bidder and therefore an improper bid document, that the governor was the principal actor in that. Similarly, there's another element that the statute incorporated with the other statutes dealing with the bid waiver. And the evidence was unclear before the grand jury and it's unclear in this record whether, despite any political favoritism, whether actually signing up that lease with Fifth Avenue Center was, in fact, under those circumstances in the public interest. And therefore, since that evidence isn't clear, it's certainly not clear through clear and convincing evidence, it is the basis of my recommendation that, although I think the legislature ought to pick up the recommendations of the grand jury, for the reforms that it has presented to you, that I don't believe that this committee has sufficient evidence before it in order to find, by clear and convincing evidence, an impeachable offense because of those activities, unquote. A short time later, Senator Fakes asked Mr. Dash to explain, to discuss the extreme pressure that state employees and various people felt from the governor's office in handling the Fifth Avenue Center lease. She asked if there was anything in the Alaska statutes 
that would help those state employees in similar circumstances. She told Mr. Dash and her Senate colleagues that she had just been alerted to pressure from the governor's office on another state lease in a different set of circumstances. Senator Fakes asked Mr. Dash how the legislature could protect the system in the process if there is no recourse to that kind of pressure. Mr. Dash responded by acknowledging that the problematic ethical behavior was certainly increasing under Mr. Sheffield's administration. The Senate's attorney repeated his earlier opinion that the core problem was Alaska's lack of adequate laws to deal with unethical behavior by state officials. Quote, there's no question that the evidence of the grand jury, especially the evidence coming from staff people in the Department of Administration, indicated that certainly within the past two years or a year, this was an increasing situation, and the concern that you raised, Senator Fakes, is a real one. I think that what Alaska faces is perhaps inadequate legislation to deal with it, inadequate standards to deal with it. And to that extent, I think that ought to be a top priority of the legislature. But it, we cannot, I know that the committee cannot look at it now from the point of view of its present duties in light of the existing legislation, unquote. From the following quotes of Mr. Dash, we see that the Senate's own attorney agreed with the Juneau grand jury's finding of fact. He agreed there were serious ethical issues in the governor's office. He agreed the problems weren't limited to a single episode and the improper pressure was increasing. He even agreed that the primary problem was the legislature's failure to adopt adequate legal consequences and supported the grand jury's recommendations. By all indications, Mr. Dash may, might have recommended the Senate impeach Mr. Sheffield if Alaska had appropriate statutes on, it, on its books. The main problem was the existing laws. They required the Alaska grand jury and the senators to do something next to impossible, to establish with clear and convincing evidence what was going on inside of Mr. Sheffield's head. Backed into a corner with such unbecoming facts, Mr. Sheffield's lawyers apparently decided their best legal strategy was to challenge the legality of the Sheffield report and the motives of Chief's, Chief Prosecutor, Mr. Hickey. They had no legal precedent in Alaska to support their attack, so they ignored the grand jury's reporting powers under common law and butchered the intent of our founders inherent in the last sentence of Article 1, Section 8. Taking the bait from Mr. Sheffield's lawyers, Democrat Senator Bill Ray asked Mr. Dash whether he thought the Juneau grand jury had, had exceeded its authority. In the second paragraph below, Senator Ray referred to a 1961 New Jersey case which followed the Camden opinion by Justice Vanderbilt in 1952, discussed extensively in Chapter 7. Mr. Dash responded that this issue was outside the scope of his engagement and was basically irrelevant. For a second time, his response to the client's questions should have stopped the Senate from directing further criticism towards the Juno grand jury's decision, but it didn't. Quote, 
This is a dialogue between Senator Ray and Sam Dash. Senator Ray, quote, I, have, I just have one other question here. It might end up with two or three questions here because I asked it earlier. And I'd like to know for Mr. Dash, you've read the information from Mr. Conway? In here, he cites that the grand jury was misinformed on the scope and authority. And then he quotes a New Jersey case here, which says, out of context, but it gives the general idea. It says here, a grand jury descends its powers, or a grand jury transcends its powers when it reprobates and disparages an individual on the basis of its opinions of the testimony he gave on appearance before it. And then it goes on to say that they have, they have exceeded their authority. This is what the Hamlin County Grand Jury in New Jersey, 1961. Do you think that the grand jury in this case exceeded its authority? Mr. Dash replied, I haven't addressed that issue, Senator Ray, but the law in Alaska is with regard to grand jury reports generally is covered by statute and also covered covered by the Constitution. I read those provisions. The statute authorizes the grand jury to investigate and make recommendations with regard to the welfare of the state and safety. Senator Ray says, but they said, Mr. Dash responded, the Constitution says that those powers should not in any, should not be in any way interfered with. It is true, I think, in this case, that the grand jury did not issue a report to the public without the approval of the court. This was a normal process where the grand jury makes its return to the court and makes it a request of the court, but it was the court that ordered that the report be sent to the Senate and disclosed. Senator Ray responded, well, it, if I might, Mr. Chairman, Chairman Kelly nods his head up and down. Senator Ray continues then there is a possibility that the court erred in releasing the information and should have sent it back to the grand jury? Mr. Dash responded, I don't think I can answer that, Senator Ray, because it's not the issue I was directed to research and present to this committee. Chairman Kelly, Senator Sackett, uh, Senator Ray continues, I would, I would, Chairman Kelly stated, Senator Ray, Senator Ray continued, yes, I think that that would be a basic thing where you start your presentation to know whether you have any evidence or not. Mr. Dash re responded, but Senator Ray, Senator Ray said, yes. Mr. Dash continued, assuming, assuming that the grand jury erred without stating that, without having researched and being, being able to give you that as a fact, assuming they erred, it has no relevance to the jurisdiction of this committee or the evidence that this committee has had. If evidence comes to you anonymously and it was substantial evidence that would lead you as a member of the Senate or a group of the Senate to consider that impeachment ought to be looked into, then this, the power of the Senate, is broad. The constitutional provision that impeachment shall be done by the legislature has no restrictions on it in terms of how it begins, unquote. Throughout the remainder of the Senate proceedings, some of the senators showed no interest in listening to the advice of their own attorney. 
Mr. Sheffield's attorneys would continue to assert that the publication of the report was wrong, that the public had no right to know the, quote, serious ethical, unquote, conduct that the governor's administration was engaging in. Incredibly, despite Mr. Dash telling his clients that the Juno, that the Juno grand jury had the constitutionally protected right to investigate and make recommendations, those senators chose to listen to Mr. Sheffield's lawyers instead of Mr. Dash. Even more astounding, at the conclusion of the special session, all 20 senators would unanimously vote to approve a resolution that sought to undermine the reporting power of the Alaska Grand Jury. After Mr. Dash had finished his opening presentation to the Senate, Mr. Lacavera, part of Mr. Sheffield's defense team, began his opening presentation by immediately attacking the legality of the Juno Grand Jury's report. Quote, We have examined this question, whether the Grand Jury acted beyond its lawful, indeed beyond its constitutional bounds, and I feel very strongly that the Senate should be aware that that is, in fact, the case, that the Grand Jury was misled, either deliberately or negligently, about its lawful functions, and so was the Superior Court, unquote. Mr. Lacavera continued his attack by claiming our founders had deliberately removed language from the Alaska Constitution that would allow the Juno Grand Jury to criticize his client. Quote, the framers of the Alaska Constitution specifically considered language that would have authorized grand juries in this state as part of their investigative functions to make reports that criticize public officials. That language was challenged as too easily subject to abuse, and it was removed during the Constitutional Convention, unquote. These representations to the Alaska Senate by the governor's attorney were erroneous. As we saw in Chapter 8, the Alaska delegates did not remove any language from the proposed Constitution that would have authorized reports critical of public officials. The amendment that was proposed by Delegate Barr towards the end of the delegate session on grand jury issues expanded, not restricted, the constitutional protection of the investigatory and reporting powers that were already on the table. There was no language in the amendment that was removed because it was too broad. Mr. Buckaloo's lone objection had been overwhelmingly rejected by the 44 to 8 vote. Mr. Lacavera continued his attack on the Sheffield report by going after the Camden opinion that Judge Vanderbilt had written in, written in 1952. Quote, the prosecutors read to the grand jury when they, the prosecutors, raised the idea of a report containing an impeachment recommendation from a New Jersey case that purportedly approved this kind of public ac accusation. They neglected to tell the grand jury that the case had been specifically overruled by the New Jersey court so that the New Jersey court brought itself into alignment with every other American jurisdiction with which I am familiar, unquote. These additional representations by Mr. Lacavera to the Senate were also erroneous on a few grounds. Number one, Judge Vanderbilt's opinion in the Camden case was not specifically overruled and continued to be cited as good authority by the New Jersey Supreme Court. Number two, the grand jury's brief to Judge Pegues in support of publishing the report 
had cited other cases besides Camden from other jurisdictions that supported the ability of grand juries to criticize public officials. Number three, Mr. Lacavera failed to acknowledge a series of Florida Supreme Court opinions that routinely authorized grand jury reports to be critical of public officials. And number four, as discussed extensively in chapters two through six, there is very strong common law precedent of American grand juries to investigate and criticize public officials. This precedent still applies in states like Alaska, where our Constitution clearly states that, quote, the power of grand juries to investigate and make recommendations concerning the public welfare or safety shall never be suspended, unquote. The Juno Grand Jury exercised their common law powers and duties in the most admirable fashion, yet the governor's attorneys showed complete disdain for the constitutional rights of the people. The next day on July 23, Mr. Sheffield's attorneys continued their assault on the Juno Grand Jury and its attorneys by filing a 24-page memorandum regarding grand jury reports. The leading argument raised in the government in the governor's memorandum was headlined, quote, the prosecutors misled the court and the grand jury about the permissibility of releasing the grand jury report, unquote. Even the next two headlines in the governor's memorandum followed suit. Quote, the prosecutors failed to inform the court or the grand jury of controlling legal principles, unquote. And, quote, the power to issue a general report on issues of public administration does not include the right to accuse specific officials of misconduct, unquote. A central component of these arguments advanced by Mr. Sheffield's attorneys was that grand jury reports criticizing public officials are, quote, not compatible with principles of due process and fundamental fairness, unquote. Mr. Sheffield's attorneys claim their client was not given due process of law, citing a legal treatise which stated a public official has a right to be heard before being condemned by a grand jury. They claim the grand jury had, quote, neither the constitutional authority nor the evidentiary foundation, unquote, to pronounce Mr. Sheffield unfit for office. For Mr. Sheffield's lawyers to promote these arguments, they had to completely ignore centuries of common law established in England and America. They had to ignore widely known authorities like Lord Summers, Justice Wilson, and Professor Younger. There was absolutely no statutory authority in Alaska that limited the reporting power of the grand jury, nor could there be any given the constitutional protections our founders granted us. The Juno Grand Jury's thorough examination provided an ex excellent example of the kind of investigation that Lord Summers described as necessary for grand juries to carry out their oath. Under common law, it is the responsibility of the grand jury alone, not the judge, to determine what is the truth, to determine what testimony to accept, and what testimony to reject. As Judge Pegues had correctly stated, he had absolutely no authority to substitute his judgment for the grand juries. Judge Pegues followed nearly 1,000 years of common law history in approving the Sheffield Report for public release, but Alaska's governor allowed his attorneys to show no respect 
for that president precedent. Other arguments raised by the governor's lawyers, lack of due process, lack of an opportunity to be heard, and, and lack of an evidentiary foundation were simply not true. The Juno Grand Jury gave Mr. Sheffield two opportunities to explain his actions involving the Fairbanks lease. As noted in the previous chapter, Mr. Sheffield had an opportunity to explain things on April 25. The transcript of his first testimony to the Juno Grand Jury spanned 33 pages. Before Mr. Hickey finished his questioning, he not only gave Mr. Sheffield an opportunity to make any general statement he wanted, but apparently gave him advance notice of this opportunity. Quote, this is Mr. Hickey speaking. That's all the specific questions that I have, Governor. As I indicated to you before you came over this morning to testify, I asked you if you had some general statement about this particular matter that you would like to make to the grand jury. This is the time to do so. Mr. Sheffield responded, thank you. I've been given a lot of thought to this in the last two or three days since all of this became aware of the project and the problems that might have been with it, unquote. Following Mr. Hickey's questioning, two of the grand jurors, let me start that over again. Following Mr. Hickey's questioning, two of the grand jurors followed up with the governor by asking him several of their own questions. This specific question and answer exchange spanned seven of the 33 total pages of the transcript of Mr. Sheffield's initial testimony. The exchange is an excellent example of the participation level in an investigation that all grand jurors, since the time even before Lord Summers, should follow. On June 12th, Mr. Sheffield was given a second opportunity to testify before the Juno grand jury. By then, the grand jurors had heard testimony from 40 other individuals over several weeks and had a much better grasp of the circumstances and the roles of various individuals. Mr. Sheffield's second appearance was much more extensive than his first and dominated the testimony heard by the grand jurors that day. His second testimony spanned 88 pages of transcript, longer than the combined testimony of the other three witnesses they heard that day. After Mr. Hickey had concluded his questions, Mr. Frampton asked the governor questions on behalf of the grand jury, and again, some of the individual jurors asked questions. The last 21 pages of the 88-page transcript documented these exchanges, including roughly 25 questions asked directly by the grand jurors themselves. Again, the Juno grand jurors were admirably or admirably engaged in the process. Besides Mr. Sheffield's two opportunities to explain the circumstances in a favorable light, the Juno grand jury heard from other witnesses who owed their employment to Mr. Sheffield and undoubtedly were motivated to cast their boss in a favorable light as well. Mr. Sheffield's chief of staff testified two entire days on June 25 and 26, and his executive secretary testified on April 25 and June 18. Mr. Sheffield's executive, excuse me, the DOA commissioner, an, appoint, an appointee of Mr. Sheffield, testified on April 30th. Cumulatively, Mr. Sheffield, his chief of staff, 
his executive secretary, and his executive assistant were granted eight opportunities to present the administration's version of the pertinent facts. Yet Mr. Sheffield's attorneys asserted in the Senate he was not given an adequate opportunity to be heard. In addition to these administrative officials who served at Mr. Sheffield's will, the grand jury also heard from the political fundraiser and others connected with the Fifth Avenue Center, who were also undoubtedly motivated to cast the governor's conduct in a favorable light. The, fundra- the fundraiser testified on May 7th, his testimony covering 80 pages of transcript. Both the leasing broker for the office building and his associate, associate testified in early May their testimonies aggregating over 150 pages of transcript. The Juneau Grand Jury heard over 200 pages of testimony from four other individuals within the ownership syndicate of the Fifth Avenue Center. Mr. Sheffield was afforded substantial due process by the Juneau Grand Jury, and there can be absolutely no reasonable doubt that their resulting findings had a strong evidentiary basis. Mr. Sheffield's basic problem was the fact that the Juno grand jurors heard his testimony and did not find him very credible. His lack of credibility and candor was a recurring theme throughout the Sheffield report, as evidenced by the following excerpts. Number one, quote, the grand jury did not believe that a full and completely candid explanation of the, event, of the events in question had been made. Number two, Mr. Sheffield's extraordinarily poor recollection as to any knowledge or discussions he he may have had or actions he may have taken regarding, regarding this matter. Number three, the grand jury has grave concerns regarding the testimony of Governor William Sheffield that he has absolutely no recollection of, among other things, and then went on to specify three items, and further testified that he was, quote, surprised, unquote, when he learned that a sole source negotiation had begun. The grand jury believes that Governor Sheffield's testimony reflects a lack of candor and a disrespect for the laws of this state. And number four, Governor Sheffield clearly does recall the late September telephone conversation in which the, fun- in which the fundraiser, when he rec- requested the RFP, but he claimed in his sworn testimony that he had absolutely no recollection of the October 2nd meeting shortly thereafter, unquote. The governor's memorandum also purported to tell Alaska senators about the intent behind the last sentence of Article 1, Section 8. But Mr. Sheffield's attorneys didn't tell the whole story and left out important portions of the Constitutional Convention when the powers of the grand jury were discussed by our founders. The governor's memorandum quoted what Mr. Buckalow and Mr. Barr said, but failed to make any mention of Mr. Hellenthal's statement that immediately followed, when he stated the grand jury can investigate anything and its broad power is proper and healthy. The governor's memorandum also failed to mention that, one, Mr. Buckalow was the only delegate to voice any opposition to the expanded powers of the grand jury, Number two, Mr. Buckalow voted against the proposed amendment and was joined by only seven other delegates who voted no. And number three, 42 other delegates sided with Mr. Barr and Mr. Hellenthal in voting for the increased protection, overwhelmingly 
rejecting Mr. Buckaloo's opposition. On this issue of the delegate's intent, and as discussed in the next chapter, the Independent Alaska Law Review pointed out in a 1986 article that, quote, Delegate Buckaloo apparently believed that his concerns about the amendment were not abrogated, unquote. Unfortunately, as Mr. Dash had admitted in his opening remarks, he was not only unprepared to challenge the assertions of Mr. Sheffield's lawyers on this issue, but he had no intention of addressing them because they were irrelevant for the Senate's purpose. Mr. Sheffield's supporters knew there was nothing standing in their way to continue these unfounded assaults on the grand jury's reporting power, and they took full advantage of the opportunity. Following the opening statements of the attorneys on July 22nd and their review of the governor's memorandum, the senators commenced their own independent investigation into the governor's involvement in the Fairbanks lease. For a variety of reasons that set forth below, the Senate investigation paled in comparison to the Juno grand juries. These shortcomings provide compelling evidence that the legislative branch is not an appropriate forum to investigate any matter which may have political implications. Point number one. The senators condensed their investigation of a period of less than two weeks compared to the 10 weeks the grand jury took to investigate. Point number two. The senators called only eight witnesses compared to the 44 called by the Juno grand jury. Half of these witnesses consisted of Mr. Sheffield, his chief of staff, his executive assistant, and the fundraiser. The other four were the attorney general, two state attorneys under him, and a deputy commissioner. Incredibly, the Senate did not call any of the state employees who felt pressured by Mr. Sheffield's administration into taking actions they felt were not in the public's best interest. Next point. The Senate proceedings were far less efficient because of their public nature open to the media. Most of the eight witnesses were questioned by anywhere from 10 to 15 different senators, some of whom later asked follow-up questions. Mindful of Winston Churchill's famous quip that politicians should, quote, never let a crisis go to waste, unquote, Alaskans can only speculate how much of the legislative investigation was more about political posturing and campaigning rather than discerning the truth, unquote. Perhaps the most compelling evidence establishing the incompetency of the legislature to investigate anything of political value were subsequent admissions of its own members. The public hearings and high stakes being played for put senators on both sides of the aisle under tremendous political pressure. A few days after the Senate hearings had concluded, Democrat Betty Ferencamp was quoted as saying, quote, there were toes stepped on that it will take years for people to get over. And I think that's sad, unquote. Her Republican counterpart in Fairbanks, Senate President Don Bennett, pro provided even more candid detail of this political pressure, alluding to the enormous amount of lobbying that took place. Quote, I think you should know that possibly some of the gravest forces that I've ever seen in my nine years in Juneau were reflected in that pressure, unquote. Senator Bennett said much of the pressure came from some of the many Sheffield appointees to boards, commissions, councils, and offices. 
Senator Bennett implied that the whole impeachment process came down to money. He predicted Mr. Sheffield would have a long memory about which senators pressed for answers. Quote, for many, many months, he'll remember each and every one of us who made him a star, unquote. And the evidence will be seen by, quote, which districts have gold-plated center lines on their highways as opposed to those that don't get a shovel turned over, unquote. At the conclusion of the Senate's investigation, further evidence surfaced that in the Alaska Senate, their quest for truth was at the mercy of politics. On August 5, 1985, the four Republican members of the SRC issued a report which stated in pertinent part, number nine, probably every one of the 20 senators has his or her own opinion of exactly what happened to cause us to have to sit together in this unhappy judgment. None of us can look inside another heart or mind, however, and Governor Sheffield says he cannot remember a number of the events, the recollection of which would have clarified his personal involvement in this matter and made our judgment easier. Number 10. It is the opinion of a majority of the Rules Committee that the evidence that an impeachable offense occurred, though substantial, does not rise to, does not rise to the level of, quote, clear and convincing evidence, unquote. The Rules Committee also believes that sufficient support to approve one or more articles of impeachment is not available in the full Senate. Item number 11. We therefore offer this report as an affirmation to the members of the public and those state employees who came forward and put their careers in jeopardy and as a condemnation of those within the state system who have, according to the record we ourselves have developed, abused the public trust and brought discredit upon themselves in this administration. Number 12, a lack of a recommendation to, the, to impeach the governor should not be interpreted, however, as in any way condoning the standard of behavior that has brought us here. The governor's chief of staff has admitted to lying to prosecutors and destroying evidence. There is also testimony that other evidence was directed to be destroyed. There is a clear pattern of persons in the governor's office being more concerned with deniability than accountability. We find that there was a clear failure on the part of the governor to set the tone for his administration, a failure to declare standards of appropriate conduct for his appointees in achieving the governor's goals. That's the end of the recommendations. The lone Democrat on the SRC issued his own supplemental report in which he specifically noted his non-concurrence with significant portions of paragraphs 10 through 16 of the majority's report and submitted his own views. All five members of the S SRC seem generally complimentary of the efforts of the Juno Grand Jury. Paragraph 20 of the, of the majority report, in which all five members concurred in, quote, strongly endorsed, unquote, the remaining six recommendations of the Juno Grand Jury's report. In other words, adopting an executive branch code of ethics state employee awareness of ethical obligations, revised procurement and competitive bidding procedures, improved campaign financing laws, etc. All five members also concurred in the last two paragraphs of the majority report, which stated, quote, item 23, the committee agrees with the grand jury 
that government officials must always aim for what is best for the public, not merely for what might be okay. Every public official has a duty of loyal, faithful, and honest service, which is clearly inherent in the responsibilities of public office at all levels. Item 24. The 15 citizens sitting on the grand jury have expressed goals that everyone in public service must aspire to, but were plainly lacking in the conduct of some of the administration officials involved here. Alaskans will not tolerate those who violate this duty, unquote. Despite their consensus in issuing these compliments, all five members of the SRC still found grounds to criticize the Juneau Grand Jury and called for controlling its investigatory power. Quote, item 21. In particular, the grand jury should have been instructed that impeachment is a political process and not a substitute for judicial remedies. And then item 22. We also recommend that a resolution requesting judicial counsel recommendations of grand jury investigative procedures be approved. Unquote. The outspoken critics of the grand jury's reporting powers were not limited to senators from, senators from the Democrat Party and the governor's lawyers. Republican Senator John Sackett maintained the grand jury had no business issuing a report that criticized Mr. Sheffield by name if it, had, if it did not indict the governor for a crime. He said, quote, under our system, there are only the absolutes of guilt and innocence. There is no middle ground. In this instance, the grand jury led, in my opinion, by an overzealous prosecutor or prosecutors, was, able, was unable to find guilt and unwilling to find innocence. The grand jury has passed the buck. It has failed in its responsibility to the people of Alaska, unquote. Before the Senate proceedings concluded, Democrat Senator Frank R. Ferguson from Kotzebue introduced a floor statement that read in pertinent part, quote, while I find nothing wrong with the grand jury when authorized to release a report containing recommendations concerning the public welfare and safety, I find the legal basis of allowing a grand jury to issue a report naming a public official without returning an indictment to be deliberately or unprofessionally negligent, unquote. Democrat Senator Vic Fisher then introduced Senate Resolution Number 5 that called for the question of grand jury powers to be examined by the Alaska Judicial Council. Apparently, there was some language in SR Number 5 critical of the grand jury that was removed by an amendment by Republican Senator Halford, who defended the grand jury's right to make the report. Mr. Halford's amendment to SR5 was adopted by a narrow 11 to 9 margin in which the 11 Republicans in the Senate voted to remove the critical language while their nine Democrat counterparts voted to keep it in. After two more subsequent amendments, Senate Resolution Number 5AM was adopted unanimously in a 20 to nothing vote. It read, quote, Be it resolved, that the Senate respectfully requests the Judicial Council to study use of the power of the grand jury to investigate and make recommendations, and that the Council make recommendations to the Supreme Court and the legislature to assure effective and proper use of that power 
with effective safeguards to prevent abuse and assure basic fairness. fairness. And be it further resolved that the Senate respectfully requests the Judicial Council to consider a possible amendment to the state constitution for presentation to the voters for ratification concerning the need to strengthen the grand jury system consistent with the due process and standards established through publications, including but not limited to materials published by the National Institute of Justice, U.S. Department of Justice, Grand Jury Reform, a review of key issues, 1983, unquote. The Alaska Senate had now unanimously joined the governor's attack on the Alaska grand jury. Any reformers opposed to the grand jury concept, who Mr. Dewey had called 40 years earlier the, quote, fuzzy-minded crackpots, unquote, now had an opening in Alaska. Was the real reason the constitutionally protected Alaska grand jury was being attacked by all 20 members of the Alaska Senate because they unanimously recognized its power to, in Mr. Dewey's words, quote, send a subpoena to the biggest official in town and see how quickly he responds and how humbly he tells his story, unquote. The next day, following the Senate's decision not to impeach Mr. Sheffield, the foreperson of the Juneau Grand Jury was quoted as saying, quote, the jury's two major goals were to give the matter the widest possible exposure so that the public could make up its own mind and public officials could be held accountable. I think that, however, the Senate hearings have turned out, I would certainly have to agree that our two major emphases have been completed, unquote. After the special session of the Senate adjourned, the public learned a few things about the 10 women and five men who served on the Juno Grand Jury when it was asked to investigate the Fifth Avenue Center lease. On August 9, 1985, the Fairbanks News Daily Miner published an article based on their August 7th interview of nine of the 15 jurors. The nine jurors agreed to be interviewed on the condition that their names not be used. One juror said, it's primarily because our, our identity was such a subject during the impeachment proceedings, and we felt so strongly that the grand jury process relies on the anonymity of the jurors, unquote. Prior to the miners' interview, and despite the substantial evidence against Mr. Sheffield's administration, some people had accused the Juno grand jury of being a Republican cabal, out to ruin a Democrat governor shortly before the 1986 elections. That allegation turned out to be baseless. Of the nine jurors interviewed, none were Republican, one was Democrat, and eight were independent. All nine had voted for Mr. Sheffield in 1982. Apologists for Mr. Sheffield's administration launched another accusation towards the Juno Grand Jury, that they were a, quote, pack of wrathful state employees out for revenge on a big business boss who was impatient with bureaucrats and bureaucracy, unquote. That one turned out to be baseless as well. The Juno Grand Jury consisted of four housewives, three state employees, three private enterprise people, two retirees, one municipal employee, one nonprofit employee, and one consultant. The interview of the grand jurors revealed that when the Juno grand jury first commenced their investigation in April, 
The individual grand jurors were evenly divided, with about a third for the governor, a third against, and a third undecided. However, by the end, they were nearly unanimous, with 14 jurors voting to issue the report on their findings to the public and the remaining juror voting to indict on criminal charges. In their words, there was, quote, no one for innocent, unquote. The jurors revealed that at times they met in unrecorded work sessions without the prosecutors and deliberated on their own. At other times, they called or recalled witnesses the prosecutors had not planned to call. They made the decision to grant Mr. Sheffield's chief of staff immunity from prosecution so they could force him to testify. They wanted to get to the bottom of the truth as well as possible. During the interview, one juror cited Mr. Sheffield's ability to remember events that were favorable to his case, but not those that were harmful. She said they, quote, really had problems with his selective amnesia, unquote. Another woman reported, quote, one question I wanted to ask him was, did you have your lobotomy before or after you were elected, unquote. The Sheffield report had been attacked as soon as it was released to the public in early July. Some senators even demanded the identities of the jurors so they could be hauled before them to explain their actions. One juror said, quote, it hurt me to know these people before they even sat down and read it and thought about it, said how bad the grand jury was doing, unquote. Another juror said, quote, I personally believe the attack was deliberately planned to shift the focus from the governor's office to the grand jury as part of the dis- defense strategy, unquote. The grand jurors talked about how stressful the or- ordeal was, especially towards the end, but they all said it was worth it. One man said, quote, I was walking down the street when it was all over and the report was issued and I was really proud to be an Alaskan, unquote. One woman said, quote, we got to be really good friends because of that sense that we had to carry this weight around for the state. There have not been very many people who have had to carry that weight around, unquote. In hindsight, none of the grand jurors wished that they would have done things differently. One juror said, quote, I feel the report was the appropriate way, the only way. The public was going to know in a timely manner what went on, unquote. Another juror said, the fact that government is run this way just eats me, unquote. Another juror added, I'm ashamed of the governor, unquote. The anonymous, nonpartisan grand jury did a better job of getting to the truth than any other type of investigative body could have done. In front of the randomly selected, unbiased, and short-term Juno grand jury, the truth had the best chance of succeeding against the strong headwinds of political intimidation and the partisan persuasion faced by the 20 senators who evaluated the governor's conduct. The public was educated as to shameful practices by the executive branch and government transparency was increased. The Senate adopted resolutions to carry out some of the grand jury recommendations. An informed citizenry armed with the truth eventually voted out the incumbent with the problematic administration. Mr. Sheffield was defeated in his own party's Democratic primary in 1986. Against opinion, 
article appeared in the August 6, 1985 edition of Fairbanks Daily News Miner, authored by Dick Randolph, titled, quote, Alaska must correct cause of corruption, unquote. At the time, Mr. Randolph was a former state legislator and member of the Libertarian Party who had been instrumental in repealing the state income tax following the sizable increase in oil revenues. Mr. Randolph pointed out questionable dealings by state officials in both the legislative and executive branches since the advent of billions of discretionary dollars from oil taxes and royalties. He wrote, quote, These circumstances are only predictable and ongoing results of the political system having an abundance of wealth which the politicians need not go to the people to acquire nor to account for. Unquote. The solution sought by Mr. Randall and any other American citizen can be found in the Alaska Grand Jury. The Alaska government proved in the Sheffield affair that its citizens should never rely on their officials to self-regulate themselves. The Alaska Grand Jury is our best hope for citizens to ensure fair and honest government. Re-educating the public and the three branches of government on the tremendous powers of the Alaska Grand Jury will lend significant help to achieving that goal. Let us citizens never forget the sentiments of the San Francisco newspaper nearly 80 years ago. Quote, the grand jury has always been disliked by politicians. It is the only body charged with investigating public offices and the only part of the prosecuting machinery that does not have to go before a political convention, unquote. In the next chapter, we shall see that when the Alaska Judicial Council finally issued its report in response to SR 5 AM, it concluded that the Alaska Grand Jury and Judge Pegues had acted properly in publicly releasing the Sheffield report. The council agreed the Alaska Grand Jury has the power to investigate and report on government misconduct. The AJC reached the same conclusion that Judge Wilson, Judge Yerkes, Judge Vanderbilt, and Mr. Dewey had reached over the preceding 200 years. And the same conclusion that legal experts like Professors Younger and Wright reached subsequently. The charges by Mr. Sheffield's lawyers and some of the and some of Alaska senators against the Juno Grand Jury actions were completely out of line. But as we shall see, the Alaska government forged forward with its attack on the Alaska Grand Jury. And that's the end of chapter ten. You know, uh, as I was listening to that uh, thank you, David, for, for <laughs> uh, reading all these chapters for everybody. I know it gets difficult at times uh, to to keep your your throat uh, moist and and pliable, <laughs> and that tongue from twisting. Um, but uh, I, I couldn't help but but remember the many times that I've spoken with legislators about issues that I'm concerned about. And their response, almost without exception, is, well, you just don't know how it is. You wouldn't understand. You haven't been where I've been. You haven't seen what I've seen. You haven't heard what I've heard. You weren't in that committee meeting. And, uh, and, and it's actually, you know, 
on one aspect, you can look and say, well, you're right. I wasn't there. But on matters of common sense, decency, and ethics, you don't have to be there because it's not those, the, the, the topics are not conditional. They're not uh, relative. They are established. They are commonly held beliefs and values, and they should be directed by a common compass, as it were, uh, that any reasonable person in our culture could point to, regardless of upbringing or education, and say, now that's just not right, or that's, that is right, or, you know, that difference between right and wrong, you know, uh, the lawyers in this world and the politicians would like to cloud the issue as cover for uh, their own indiscretions or their own failings in uh, adhering to that compass and listening to all of the spend that was created by those, you know, in, in a partisan political environment to, but not just, you know, Democrats versus Republicans, but it was, it was like, it sounds like the, the establishment of, of the legislature itself went into self-preservation mode, and it didn't really necessarily matter what side of the aisle you sat on or what your political allegiances were, you know, as the Senate demonstrated. They perceived a real threat to their status quo, their base of power, their ability to fudge the numbers and have fuzzy-minded thinking and uh, come up with solutions that would not resonate with the public, but that they could just dismiss with those same comments. We always hear, and we still hear today, well, God bless your heart. You just weren't there. You wouldn't know. You know, thank you for participating. Next, next question, <laughs> you know. And, and, that, and that has been my biggest disappointment with the last freshman class that went into the, the House of Representatives is that a majority of those folks went in on the heels of a legislature that was very activist and outside of uh, their party uh, pledges operating this, uh, basically giving the minority the power of the majority. And the folks that replaced them promised the sun, moon, and stars about how things would be different. And Governor Dunleavy promised the sun, moon, and stars about how, how he was going to go in and take names and kick butts and, you know, uh, balance the budget and uh, correct the PFD situation and all this. But then how quickly did they all default to this elitist position of now we're the smartest people in the room and you peasants should know your place. And, and, and it seems like in this particular case with the governor, with Mr. Sheffield, that uh, the entire establishment that is the government pushed back with everything in its power to silence the people. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when it came down to it, um, you know, there there was a couple decisions which uh, split along party lines, but that, that 20 to nothing vote uh, says it all. And uh, that was the 
you know, that was all 20, you know, I believe that was all 20 sen- senators of Alaska banding together to protect their turf. I mean, it's very clear that, that a lot of these senators did not, you know, they're like, who are these people and who are these, you know, Joe Blow citizens in Juneau who can tear us away from our summer plans and, and force us to come down to Juneau? Don't they you know, know that I'm somebody and they are nobody? <laughs> How dare they, you know, impugn my character and, and my position? Because... I, after all, am a philosopher king, as it were, a leader beyond reproach. I, I am here to protect all of you from yourselves. I mean, that's what I hear. That's, that's, yeah. that's the arrogance that is the legislature then and I would contend today. Well, you know, and we, we need to work with them. You know, we, we don't want, you know, they're humans. And like you said, a lot of people uh, that's go in with, you know, they, <laughs> well, they, they, you know, they go in with, uh, you know, altruistic ideals. But the problem is, is the system. And, and we're starting to, you know, I, I really applaud uh, Senator uh, Shower uh, for that YouTube video in which he explained how it works. You know, he talked about, you know, when he'd been a senator for 30 minutes, you know, he goes into a room and there's four people there telling him, you know, how it's going to work. Well, and uh, I, I will and tell I gotta, you. And, I'll t- and, well, I'll just finish. Ahead, yeah. I, I, I want to I, I applaud uh, Senator Shower, Senator Meyer, and, uh, and uh, Senator Hughes for – you know, making a stand against this this year. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit, I think a couple of days, a couple episodes ago, but you know, they're, they're saying we're not going to sell our vote. We're, we're, we're not going to, you know, we're, we're not going to subscribe to this system that is just broken. Uh, it's broken at the state level and it's broken at the federal level. And, and, you know, now by having three out of 20 senators take this stand, uh, you know, and, and Jason, we were talking off the air, um, uh, a couple episodes ago about, you know, your experience, um, with the legislature when you were there and, and how all this works with, you know, committees and staff and all the control that they have. And, and this is the, this is the problem, uh, you know, that, that we have with the legislative system. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful. I don't know. I, I, I spent a lot of time. Uh, in the legislature last year, testifying between before a couple committees, and I walked away with absolute disgust. And I, I, I remember telling myself, "This place is an insane asylum." And but it, it's part of our form of uh, democracy. It's an important part. I mean, we we elect those people, so we do have some power. And I think we just need to shine the spotlight spotlight of truth on the legislature. And, you know, hold these people accountable. But somehow we, we need to break up this system of control. Well, I'm, I'm looking inter- at I'm looking at a, a Ballotpedia, which is a great resource if you want to learn about candidates and races and things. It's kind of like Wikipedia, but it's a, it's just a running catalog of information on, on what's happening politically. Um, and uh, there was a gentleman that ran for uh, Senate this last uh, go-round um, from Homer, uh, a military veteran uh, and a truck driver. Uh, his name is Walter Jones. And 
Walter came to our shop here and asked if we would be willing to uh, put up some some uh, signage for him, and and I met him at a couple of different pu- uh, functions that I attended. Um, but I got to talk to his wife, and uh, quite a bit. And Walter didn't actually fare very well in the election. He was running against Senator Gary Stevens, who was a, uh, I guess, a professor by by um, by profession before becoming a professional politician. Um, and uh, Gary Stevens is a—he calls himself a Republican, but he really uh, leans to the center and left on a lot of different things. And so um, there were three candidates that ran against or ran in that race: Gary Stevens, Heath Smith, and Walter Jones. Well, Walter's wife told me about uh, how senior Senate leadership uh, had sat down with him. Uh, along with a uh, local representative and told him how it was going to be. And that if he would just do certain things, that they would assure he got the support he needed. And it's very similar to the story that you, you, you recounted with uh, Senator Shower and um, how, how those big boys and girls who've been at the top a while, uh, line out the freshman uh, candidates or those who are running for... So it starts before their election. Uh, it intensifies after their election. But even in the, in the campaign season, these folks are feeling the pressure to compromise their values and soften their rhetoric or at least make assurances that if they have tough rhetoric, that it will soften once they're installed. And in that particular case, there are three, the, the, the establishment was on full display there because uh, they were trying to insulate Mr. Stevens. And I have no doubt in my mind, and this is pure speculation on my part, but that had... Mr. Jones compromised his moral compass and his political philosophies in exchange for promises of, of uh, assistance with his campaign that it would have turned around and bit him in the butt ultimately anyway, because right. he represented a change in the status quo and the powers that be are not interested in the status quo changing unless they orchestrate the change themselves and so, uh, you know, Mr. Jones, uh, and in, in this case, three districts filed, were filing, last I heard, were filing uh, complaints with the Alaska Republican Central Committee because this other candidate, Heath Smith, who was the, the, the runner-up to the position, he got about 4,300 votes, um, had requested, and his district uh, these three districts had said that they were not endorsing the incumbent, Mr. Stevens, and they all threw their endorsements behind this uh, Mr. Smith, Heath Smith. But uh, they refused, the The Central Committee refused to even um, reply to Mr. Smith in his request for endorsement and uh, assistance with his campaign. And instead they sent, I, I heard, about $1,000 to assist Mr. Stevens in his his uh, campaign as the incumbent. 
And there is a there is a rule in the Alaskan Republican Party at this point that local districts can choose to endorse a different candidate if the incumbent is operating outside of uh, the district's uh, wishes for them in their representation. So if they're not following the party platform or the planks, if they're doing things that they feel are uh, compromising their political philosophy, they, they can get behind them. And so that's not necessarily something the grand jury would deal with at the campaign level, but you can see how it sets a foundation for this expanded corruption, this expanded um I guess uh, we talked earlier about people being compromised or leveraged. It, it sets people up that when they hit Juno, they don't have a chance, a snowball's chance in Florida of uh, surviving the, the intense pressure from the bureaucrats and the lawyers and the lobbyists. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, you know, definitely a, a problem. I mean, thankfully, uh, uh, you know, I, I am not a member of the uh, Republican Party, and I don't want to be a member of the Republican Party, and uh, I, I value my independence, uh, which is as I think it should be. I mean, uh, you know, we should be free to vote for, you know, whoever we think is the best, is the best person, you know? It, 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 it comes down to an individual thing, and what, what are the ethics? You know, this is, this is something that we've completely gone away from in Alaska is ethics. And um, uh, it should really come down to the morals of, of the of the individual. And, and, you know, that's who I want to put my vote behind for. You know, I, I'm not going to vote for someone who talks out of both sides of their mouth. I mean, what's the point? Well, uh, they're, they're going to be they're going to be with you until they're against you. You know, that's <laughs> and, right. And if they're if money is their goal, if, if financial reward is their goal, well, I've got no chance. You know, because there's going to be people that come along that got more money than I, and and so if their loyalty is to money, then I don't want to vote for someone like that. Well, and um, there was one other. Go ahead. I was just going to say there was one other thing that you that you brought up early, and when you when you started, you know, when when you talked about how you know the legislators look at you like uh, you know they're better than you, and okay, you 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 turn, you know, you said your two cents next. And I, I can't tell you how I felt, you know, that just really frustrated me this last legislative session because, you know, I went in and spoke uh, several times and you're limited to two or three minutes, you know, and, and Senator Holland at the time was chair of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. He had the audacity to tell me, you know, Mr. Gnell, you would be more effective if you talked with us, not at us. And I'm like, how am I supposed to talk with you? in the three minutes that you give me, <laughs> you know, it's impossible. And so, um, you know, legislators, I think people should start demanding because I've seen this in hearings, you know, where they, you know, if, if you're invited, if, if you're an invited uh, speaker at a, at a committee meeting, you can go on for hours. You know, this is what I was dealing with uh, when I was speaking out against uh, one of these bills that came out of the governor's office, giving the department of law more discretion. You know, they would they would invite witnesses who would interact with them for for hours. And I'm given three minutes to, to, to try to tell them that the Department of Law has abused their discretion in these cases and that by giving them more power, more discretion, it's just going to lead to more tyranny. But I'm, I'm given, you know, three minutes 
to, to do that. And, you know, Mike Shower did ask me some questions, so I got to engage with that a little bit. But, you know, if they want, they can just shut you up. It, it's like I felt like there was times when what I was saying was going in one ear and out the other. You know, it was like, okay, Mr. Ignell, you, you talk for three minutes and I'm going to be thinking about my next vacation on the beach in Hawaii or something like that. You know, it's just, uh, so I think that this is one of the things is that, you know, citizens should start demanding. And I don't know how you go about doing that, you know, whether there's some kind of rules, but, you know, citizens have a right to be heard. And uh, you, you can't be heard in two or three minutes. I, you know, it doesn't matter if, if, if the senators need to be there for two hours or three hours. Uh, you know, as long as people are making a point and, you know, they're, they're talking sensibly, uh, they, they, they should have a right to get their point across. And we can't do that. We can't talk with them, in three, which is what we need to do. We can't do that in three minutes. Well, with that, uh, what I'd like to say is that it doesn't seem like the chairman shutting you down had the desired effect because it seems to have more radicalized you in your uh, determination to have your concerns heard to the point that you've written a very well-organized book, which folks can find at, give us that website real quick, poweredbyjustice.com poweredbyjustice.com so you can go and get the entire book it's free it's on pdf and uh, you've been listening to the conservative hour of power and enlightenment salon brought to you by ammo can coffee social club deep in the heart of soldatna across the street from best western on deck uh get ready to rumble because we are going to have uh a special guest here talking about his own struggles with the system and injustice created by, brought to you by, sponsored by local bureaucrats and their continued, uh, I guess, efforts to keep us complacent, keep us quiet and in our place. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode, special episode 11, just as soon as you click that button.